0: Hey, Crosswalk 1130. Good to see you. Thanks for coming out to worship with us today. I hope you are uh, embracing fall because you really don't have a choice about whether you embrace it or not. This is the time when, uh, you know, we can, we can either be excited and celebrate or we can be sad. You typically know that you're in Portland um, when the first rain comes and people are posting about it on social media and they're saying, oh, it's so great, it feels so good, the rain, we love the rain, and that lasts for a few weeks. And then it's like, oh, it's still raining, and then, and then a few weeks later, it's like, I, w- I wonder when it's going to stop raining, and then we just go through the next several months. Um, but I hope uh, that you are enjoying It is good to be back with you this weekend, because last weekend, I was in uh, at one of our other campuses, Crosswalk Chattanooga in Tennessee. Tennessee is slightly different than Oregon. Uh, at least Portland, I should say, slightly, slightly different. Um, and so, uh, but it was super good to be able to be there. It's always funny when you go to another place. I'm starting to get this more and more. Got this over the summer in a couple of places I traveled. I got this in Chattanooga um, that you had people that came up to you and they're like, you live in Portland? Are you okay? <laughs> and I'm like, I, I, think, I think I'm okay. Uh, You know, but yeah, whatever they think is happening in Portland, uh, they are very concerned for you. But it was great to be there because... This movement we're a part of with Crosswalk, and I know I talk about this a lot because I get to actually witness this movement on a regular basis. Every week I get to talk to the other campuses, the other Lovewell groups, and what God is doing in those spaces and how we all partner and help each other out. Um, you know, but all of that happens because there was a group in Chattanooga, Tennessee that looked at what Crosswalk Redlands was doing and said, man, I wonder if we could do that here. And because Chattanooga chose to step into that space courageously, it really opened the door for us to come here to Portland. It opened the door for other campuses and groups to start. So as I say all the time, um, you know, how what we do in this room matters. It is a huge blessing for us. But how we do it is allowing this movement to spread to other places. And that started with Chattanooga. So it was super fun to be there. Um, and, and just to give you an idea of this movement and how it's continuing to to, to progress. Uh, last weekend, Pastor Tim Gillespie and Pastor Ron Aguilera, Pastor Ron is our executive pastor, they were in Jakarta, Indonesia, a city of 11 million people uh, that with a, the only English-speaking church there that wants to become a crosswalk campus. Um, So that would be our second international campus. Um, In addition, in the last couple of weeks, there've been six more requests for people that wanna start a Lovewell group, which then becomes a campus. And so God is using this thing. It's a little daunting and a little frightening and a little scary. But I often feel that means we must be chasing after God because he's gonna push us into places that we don't always feel ready to go. Um, And so it's exciting to be a part of that. And as a part of that journey, um, you know, Pastor Lydia said it before, but we are thinking about the ways in which God is continuing to call us here in Portland and what that means for us. Um, And I know some of us need to come. We're at a place in our journey or we're just coming back to church and being able to just sit and enjoy and take this in is a huge blessing to us. Others of us have really busy jobs and lives in the week and we need this rest. Um, But we also wanna have you encourage you to think about what could God calling you to do to be a part of the movement? Um, You know, we are always in need of people, whether that's serving coffee or telling a story to the kids or teaching in high school or, you know, helping greet people as they come in and just love on them. Um, so we'd love you to think about and consider what God might be calling you to do. If that means just taking a card, the Crosswalk Move cards that are all over the table and praying about it before you step into something. We don't want to take advantage of you. We don't want to work anybody to the bone. We just want to give you a chance to get connected and to serve as often as you're able. If that's once every six weeks, cool. If that's every other week, we'll take you. Um, but we want to encourage you to, to think about what that means for you. So thank you for doing that. Um, today, we have chosen to uh, continue our Unbroken series, uh, even though technically it finished last weekend, and this is Campus Day, as Pastor Lydia was saying, um, but we missed a particular topic in the course of the Unbroken series. It's been about mental health and faith uh, because of our anniversary weekend and celebration. So we skipped over this and we don't want to skip over this because today we get to talk about the super exciting and absolutely simple and uncomplicated topic of mental health and demon possession. Can I get an applause for, no? Okay. All right. Yeah. Super easy. Not a big issue at all. Um, it's interesting, though, is that typically when I tell people we're going to talk about you know, the devil, we're going to talk about the battle of good and evil, the great controversy, you get two different kinds of responses depending on your worldview. You either get the heebie-jeebies and you don't want to talk about it, um, or you kind of roll your eyes and you think, well, can't we just take a more scientific approach to all of this? Either way, I hope that we can find some common ground in the course of the conversation and a whole lot of hope. But I have to admit, anytime I talk about the enemy of God, Satan, the devil, the adversary, I get these two different kinds of responses. On on one side, I have people that come up to me and they'll say, please just don't talk about the devil, don't say his name, don't draw any more attention to him or bring any more attention to us. Um, And this happened to me the very first time that I spoke on the controversy in the battle of good and evil. Uh, When I was the chaplain at Walla Walla University, I had students come up and say, okay, yeah, can can we just not go here? Um, You know, it made them nervous. Um, And I can remember, uh, a person that broke the ice a little bit, and if you've heard me talk about this, if you were at Walla Walla for like a 10 or 12 year period, um, you knew about this person, but we had a person in our congregation, I've mentioned him before, his name was Rusty, and Rusty loved talking back to preachers. He would say things all the time uh, to them, uh, like the band would say, hey, we're going to teach you a new song, and Rusty would blurt out, well, it better be good, um, You know, and and so I would give every speaker that would come to Walla Walla a Rusty orientation. And I had to do this because if you you kind of leaned into it and if you responded to Rusty, Rusty would amp up his responses. So I would tell them to do their best to try and ignore him. And I would say try because there were times when you were not going to be able to. And that happened the first time I was talking about the Great Controversy. And I got to this place. It was super dramatic. It was in this moment where you could hear a pin drop. I said the name of the devil, Lucifer, for the first time. There's tension in the air. And the silence lasted about a second, maybe two, before Rusty blurted out, that dirty bird. (laughs) And I laughed because he wasn't wrong. Uh, you know he is a dirty bird, but it kind of kind of broke things up a little bit. People were able to get on about it. So you have the people kind of freaked out to talk about it, and then you have the people that would rather. Uh, well, they are more likely to think that talking about the devil is simply a scare tactic, right? That the devil is really just a metaphor for evil. He's not real. Um, and so the the C. S. Lewis quotes that I go to on a regular basis are, are ones I'm sure you've heard me say these, but. Uh, I love these quotes. He said, the devil doesn't care if you're so afraid of him that you hide in a corner or if you fail to believe he exists. Either way, he's got you, right? So those are kind of the two extremes. He also talks about it this way. And he says, there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive unhealthy interest in them. And some of us do have an unhealthy obsession with evil. We're getting into the spirit of Halloween. I'm always amazed at how many people decorate their houses for Halloween. The spiders, the skeletons, all this kind of stuff. In part, like I'm not making a a statement on Halloween. I'm just thinking about like, man, it's so much work. You got Halloween and then you just turn around and do Christmas, come on, let's do one. But anyway... Um, that's my own personal opinion, uh, but we focus on evil sometimes too much. And, and sometimes we think it's actually for, uh, good reasons that we focus on it. Author Ellen White actually wisely warns us of what happens when we look for the evil in others. She says, the very act of looking for evil in others develops evil in those who look. By dwelling upon the faults of others, we are changed into the same image, I think this is important for us to think about because sometimes we're looking at what other people are doing, how other people are sinning, and we're judging, and we're focusing so much on that that we actually become that ourselves. You see that a lot of times in churches. Um, But uh, Martin Luther King Jr. uh, once said, violence begets violence, hate begets hate. It is all a descending spiral and the end is destruction for everybody. Along the way of life, someone must have enough sense and morality to cut off the chain of hate. I love that. We, we must have enough sense of morality, I would even say courage, to cut off the chain of hate. Maybe this is why Jesus said things like, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And when someone slaps you on the right cheek, offer the other cheek also. Jesus was teaching us how to cut off the chain of hate and stop the amplification of evil in the world. Again, Martin Luther King Jr. said, darkness cannot drive out darkness, only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate, only love can do that. I've thought about this a lot in the last couple of weeks, especially as it relates to the conflict in the Middle East and the many lives that are being taken in that conflict Violence begets violence, right? You do something bad to me, I'm gonna do it back to you 10 times worse. When will we as a human race seek to cut the chain of hate, to rise above our differences and learn to see each human being as an image bearer of God and treat each other accordingly? Maybe that's what heaven is. But if I read the scriptures correctly, Jesus called us to bring heaven to earth now. It's going to be hard work, but it's the work that is needed. So let me jump into the conversation on demon possession this way. I believe that demons are real. I believe there are demonic forces at work in the world, just like I believe that there are godly forces at work in the world. A simple read through the gospels will help you see this conflict pretty clearly. A few examples. The spirit then compelled Jesus to go into the wilderness where he was tempted by Satan for 40 days. Another one, so Jesus healed many people who were sick with various diseases and he cast out many demons, but because the demons knew who he was, he did not allow them to speak. Yes, Jesus told them, I saw Satan fall from heaven like lightning. Again, he told Peter, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. Now, there are many other examples, but it seems clear in Scripture that the battle between good and evil, God and Satan, was on full display in the gospel stories. What's interesting to note, actually, a little aside, is that in the Old Testament, you don't see a lot of references to the devil. You see a handful, there's Job, there's a couple of other places, but you don't. You start to see a lot more um, in-your-face kind of references in the New Testament. Part of that had to do with worldview. In the Old Testament, they thought, okay, well, God is all-powerful. If God allowed something to happen, then God did it. So God was ultimately responsible. Um, So you see that God did this, and God murdered these people, and God, whatever, when in reality, it was evil. But that's their worldview. So um, there for sure is for us a very complicated decision around the idea of demonic forces. But in scripture, especially with Jesus, it wasn't complicated. When Jesus encounters demons, it's pretty clear who was in charge, right? To him, it's not complicated, I also really like what Pastor Sam Lenore had to say a few weeks ago when he preached on this at the Redlands campus. And if any of you have his number and you text him and say, you know, Pastor Patty said something nice about you in church, I will deny it. So don't, he doesn't need any more, like he's amazing, he's awesome. So just don't, right? (laughs) But I did like what he had to say um, about this, and I told him, it's fine. But I liked how he said that he did not believe the devil can possess a person. It's more of an occupation, which I thought was an interesting distinction to make because to possess is to own and completely control something, whereas to occupy means to reside in or use for a time. But it only continues as it is allowed to continue. As we surrender to Jesus, we belong to him. The devil may try to occupy our thoughts, our act, our distract us, deter us, but he can't possess. So I liked that point a lot. So all of that said, let's look to our teaching for today in Scripture to see what more we can learn about demon occupation and mental health. Our story is a unique story in the Gospels. It comes to us from Mark 5, 1 to 20, often called the demoniac man. Um, And it's unique because there are several things that happen in this story that don't happen anywhere else in the Gospels, and especially anywhere else where Jesus confronts demons. In context, Jesus has um, just crossed over with the disciples across the Sea of Galilee. And if you remember, as they were crossing... Jesus falls asleep, um, and there's a storm that hits, a storm that's so big that it overtakes the disciples. They can't seem to get on top of it. So they're worried, they're scared, and they look to Jesus. They yell at him thinking like, hey, grab a bucket, man. Help us get this water out of here before we die. Jesus does one better. Jesus stands up and looks at the wind and the waves and says, peace, and then he turns to the disciples and says, be still. Be still. And suddenly everything dies down, the wind and the waves. All you can hear is the ripple of the water up against the boat. The disciples are so taken back with what they just witnessed that they say, who is this man? Even the wind and the waves obey him. Who is he indeed? It's a question we're going to come back to here in a bit. But upon landing on the other side of the Sea of Galilee, Jesus is now in Gentile territory. Gentiles are anybody that is not a Jew. So we're told when Jesus climbed out of the boat, a man possessed by an evil spirit came out from the tombs to meet him. So a few things to take note of this. So one, as I said already, he goes to the territory of the Gerasenes. This is a territory that is Gentiles. Gentiles were considered by Jews to be unclean. Okay. And then he is immediately confronted with a man that is possessed by a demon. The condition of this man would have been unclean as far as the Jews were concerned. And the man comes from tombs, cemetery, burial sites. So that would also have made him unclean. So he's unclean in every way you can imagine. And to your typical Jew, that meant stay away. Don't go anywhere near this place, this person, this situation, because it's unclean but that's not how Jesus takes it, right? Jesus, in fact, chose to go to this place and we're not told that he did anything else here, that after this encounter with this man, he actually leaves. So did he cross the Sea of Galilee for this one person in this one situation? It seems like it. And what can we learn about this unclean man in an unclean territory coming from an unclean place? We learn that whatever you're going through Whatever you're struggling with, whatever decisions you've made, whatever level of depression or anxiety or shame or guilt, whatever it is, there is no place you can go where Jesus' love will not chase after you. There is nowhere you can go away from the Father. He is here to chase after you and He just hopes you will let Him catch you. As David uh, once wrote, and I love this in Psalm 139, I can never escape from your spirit. I can never get away from your presence. If I go up to heaven, you are there. If I go down to the grave, you are there. If I ride the wings of the morning, if I dwell by the farthest oceans, even there your hand will guide me and your strength will support me. There is nowhere we can go that God won't chase after us. No mistake we can make, no amount of distance that we can get away from God, no level of anxiety, depression, bipolar disorder, addiction or decisions can shut us out from his love. His love will chase after us all the days of our lives in hopes that one day we will finally fall into his arms of grace and let God love us, redeem us, and heal us, and make us whole. So back to the story. The next thing we read is this. The man lived in the burial caves and could no longer be restrained, even with a chain. Whenever he was put into chains and shackles, as he often was, he snapped the chains from his wrists and smashed the shackles. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Day and night he wandered among the burial caves and in the hills howling and cutting himself with sharp stones. Now, chains and shackles are such a good metaphor for our struggle with sin as well as our struggle with mental health. Now, in this story, the man couldn't be restrained, but I am sure he felt like a prisoner in his own body. He wanted to be freed, to be saved, to have the voices in his head stop, but no matter what he did, he couldn't break free. So maybe the howling and cutting was his way of trying to escape, or maybe it was the demon's way of trying to take the last bit of God's image that was left in this man. Either way, his pain was real, his struggle was intense, and after so long, I'm sure, his hope of ever getting better had all but faded away. The story continues and says, when Jesus was still some distance away, the man saw him, ran to meet him and bowed low before him with a shriek. He screamed, why are you interfering with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? In the name of God, I beg you, don't torture me. Now, this is a common scene when a demon encounters Jesus. The demons take a posture of worship and they acknowledge who Jesus is. Now often one of the unique parts of the story Jesus silences them and doesn't let them talk so the Jews don't hear from the demons who he is. But we're not in Kansas anymore. We're in Gentile territory and the needs are different here. I also find it interesting that the demons beg Jesus not to torture them. It's like they're trying to cast shade on the character of Jesus and say, you know, he actually he really likes torturing us, so please don't torture us. Don't forget that the devil deals in lies and is trying to get you to believe a lie about yourself, about God certainly, about how the world works. So what happens next in the story is also unique for a conversation takes place between the demons and Jesus. It says this, For Jesus had already said to the Spirit, Come out of the man, you evil spirit. Then Jesus demanded, What is your name? And he replied, My name is Legion, because there are many of us inside this man. Now, first, it's interesting to note that Jesus commanded the demons to come out, and they didn't, at least not right away. Now, I don't think it's that the demons could have stayed if they wanted to, but they wanted to have a conversation, and there's more going on in the story than we realize at first read. Jesus asks for a name, the demons respond by saying they are legion. And if you've heard this story before, if you've heard someone teach on this story, I'm sure they talked about the fact that a legion usually meant as many as 6,000 Roman soldiers. So there could have been as many as 6,000 demons inside of this man. It's hard to really wrap your brain around. But there is another insight into all this that we can take away, and it has to do with what comes next. Whenever I've read this story, the part that has always been odd to me involves the pigs. You see, the demons asked Jesus to be cast into a herd of pigs instead of the abyss. Why pigs? I mean, the only thing that I could have ever figured out before was that, well, pigs were unclean. And so, you know, the demons were saying, throw us into the pigs because they're bad anyway. These demons were really good Adventists. Right? So that was always the only connection I used to make, but in my study this week, I came across another possibility that makes the impact of this story even greater. You see, rumor has it that not far from the region of the Garrusines was stationed a battalion of the 10th Roman Legion. A battalion was approximately 2,000 soldiers and the 10th Roman Legion were the Navy SEALs of the Roman Empire. They were the secret service to the emperor, like the best of the best. And when they were sent to battle, there was no question who was in charge and who could win when the 10th Roman Legion came into town. Interestingly enough, do you know what the symbol was for the 10th Roman Legion? a boar, otherwise known as a pig. And do you know how many pigs these demons were cast into? As the story continues, it says, so Jesus gave them permission. The evil spirits came out of the man and entered the pigs and the entire herd of about 2,000 pigs plunged down the steep hillside into the lake and drowned in the water. Now there are just way too many coincidences here to not take note. The demons say they are a legion. The symbol of the 10th Roman legion was a pig. A battalion of soldiers number 2,000 and 2,000 pigs end up drowning in the lake at the command of Jesus. So was this just another demon possession story or was this a political statement that made another group of people say what had just been said before this story? Who is this man, Jesus? He is in charge of the wind and the waves and seems to have power in his words over any political power, any army or any force of darkness. Who is this man indeed? This is the central question of every generation of Christians and it must be answered because if your Jesus is only part of the story, if you say, and I've had people say this many times, that Jesus is just the spiritual milk We gotta get past Jesus to the meatier things of scripture. Yes, Jesus is the spiritual milk and he's the pitcher the milk is in and he's the table that the milk is sitting on and he's the house that the table resides in and he's the earth that the house is on because Jesus is bigger than all these other things. And we have to recognize that Jesus is bigger because when Jesus is bigger, then this other stuff starts to make more sense. It becomes a little more into focus and we realize, oh, demon possession, Jesus is in charge. As the story concludes, Mark tells us, a crowd soon gathered around Jesus and they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons. He was sitting there fully clothed and perfectly sane or in his right mind, other translations say, and they were all afraid. Interesting to me that that's their response. Then those who had seen what had happened told the others about the demon-possessed man and the pigs, and the crowd began pleading with Jesus to go away and leave them alone. Why? Why? <laughs> What was it about Jesus that they wanted him to leave? Was it because, again, the teaching was always, well, he just cost them a lot of money, 2,000 pigs. That's a lot of money. Get out of here. Or was it because they were in the presence of someone and something so powerful that they couldn't wrap their brains around it and they were scared? So please, leave our region. We're not, we don't know what this is, but we don't know that we're ready for this. It's an interesting and fascinating story to think about. And then the last thing that's really unique that happens in this story is what Jesus tells the man to do. We finish it with Jesus saying, Jesus said, no, go home to your family and tell them everything the Lord has done for you and how merciful he has been. Now, typically, Jesus tells people not to tell another person. But again, that's in a different time, a different place. Here, Jesus says, go tell people freely because they need to hear that there's another power in charge, that someone else is now in control. And so he goes out, and he doesn't just tell his family. It says he goes out and tells the Decapolis, 10 cities. He told everybody that he could find what Jesus had done for him. When all has been said and done, we may never understand all the implications and differences between mental health and demon occupation other than acknowledging that they both exist and that when Jesus is present, then the demons know who's in charge, right? But as we've been saying this whole series, when it comes to mental health, take a multidisciplinary approach for care. That means you address your needs physically. Doctor, get things checked out. You address them emotionally and mentally. A therapist is always a good idea. Sometimes there's medication that has to get involved to help you get to a stable place to address what you're going through. And certainly spiritually and what's happening there, it's important to take a multidisciplinary approach. Right, But the other thing to remember is that no matter what's going on in your life, no matter what you're going through, no matter how scared you are, that in the arms of Jesus, you are safe. In the arms of Jesus, you are safe. Let me share a story as I close that I thought about this week as I was working uh, on this sermon. Now, for the first 10 years of my life, I lived in a faraway land called Ohio. Uh, for those of you who are not sure, it is a part of the 48 continental United States. Um, uh, but uh, Ohio, unlike the Northwest, is a place where tornadoes like to frequent. Now, I don't know if anybody got that tornado warning on your phone this week. Um, but yeah, I don't worry too much about that around here. We have the gorge. It's like a daily tornado. Um, but in Ohio, it's a little bit of a different uh, story. In the last 70 years, Ohio has had 38 tornadoes that ranked as, as F4 class, which means 200 plus. And they've had four that ranked as F5 tornadoes, which can be over 300 miles an hour. If that tornado hits anything, anything, forest, buildings, whatever, it flattens them right? It's a scary thing. And so I can remember growing up and doing practice drills at school and what, where they would have us go and what they'd have us to do. We do practice drills at home, all those kinds of things. And then one evening during a bad storm, their tornado siren went off, which meant there was a severe tornado touching down somewhere within miles of where we were. At the time, we had a one-story house, and I think I was around five, which would have made my brothers seven, eight, and 10. You know, and, and so my parents put us in the safest place in the middle of a tornado in a situation like that. Does anybody know where that is? Bathtub. There was no basement in our house. So uh, just the bathtub. So they put us in the bathtub. They covered us with pillows in case any debris came and fell on us and all that kind of stuff. But I knew as we sat there and I was with my brothers, I knew that there was no other place in the house like that. So likely my parents were in the living room sitting there listening to the radio to get updates on where the storm was. And if you're under the age of 30, you're probably more frightened by the fact that we didn't have phones to update us Then you are the tornado. Like, oh, tornado, that's fine, but what about my phone? Um, So anyway, they're listening to the radio. I'm in there with my brothers, and I start to think to myself, if the tornado actually hits this place, like, my parents will get taken, and I'll be left to be raised by my older brothers. I didn't like that scenario at all. I thought that was actually worse. So I jumped up, And I ran into the living room and I saw my parents there. Now you have to understand, at five years old, I was probably 42 inches tall. I was only 40 pounds wet. Um, And my dad, on the other hand, uh, was different. My dad, six foot three, over 300 pounds, which as a kid, I thought all of that was muscle. I learned later there were some other things. (laughs) But I looked at my dad, nobody messed with my dad. And I figured in that moment that I would rather take a chance in my dad's arms in the middle of a tornado than in a bathtub with my brothers. (laughs) But the connection remains. Whatever storm you're facing in life, whatever you're going through right now, relationship issues, financial troubles, anxiety, depression, worried about the future, worried about now, just trying to get through the day, sin guilt, whatever it might be, you are safer in the arms of Jesus no matter what storm faces you, no matter what you're going through. You are safer in the arms of Jesus. So when you think of mental health and you think demon possession, you think of any of the other stories we've talked about over the last five weeks, remember this. A multidisciplinary approach is critical. Take care of yourself. Get a care team surrounding you but always, always, always know that no matter what situation you're in, Jesus knows because Jesus has been there and Jesus is bigger than anything that we face. So help us as a community of faith remind you about that when you can't remember it yourself. And may we together fall safely into the arms of Jesus so that we can go into the world and we can bring his hope and his light and his courage and remind people Where to run to when the storm hits. Would you pray with me? Dear Jesus, I thank you so much for loving us beyond measure. I thank you for being bigger than anything we face. I thank you that in our mental health challenges that you are there with us and that you actually have experienced what we experience and you know what it's like and you are willing to journey with us every step of the way. In fact, you're willing to chase after us no matter where we've gone, where we've been, what we've done, because we are your children in whom you love and with whom you are well-pleased. So Father, help us remember our identity, help us find the help that we need, and help us lean into community and you as you seek to make us whole. We love you so much, Lord. We pray these things in your precious and holy name. Amen.